Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I am your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Matt O'Connor. Matt is a data scientist and strategy coach helping companies equip their business for data and AI independence. He is the former lead investment engineer for algorithmic trading at the world's largest hedge fund, Ray Dalio's Bridgewater Associates. And he's a serial entrepreneur who has raised capital at seven-figure valuations. Currently, he is the founder of Reboot AI, where he has helped some of the world's biggest multinational companies better monetize their data. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. Great to be here. Absolutely, man. And uh, before we go anywhere in this interview, I just want to say congratulations on first place with your, uh, with your AI that identified uh, remdesivir. I th- is, is that how you pronounce it? As the potential COVID 2019 treatment? Yeah, yeah. So that was a competition uh, that Siraj, many people know him, he's a big YouTuber with a big audience um, mm-hmm. that he organized to use AI machine learning to potentially generate a molecule, a new drug candidate basically for treating uh, coronavirus. And, um, and uh, yeah, I won first place at that. I don't have a background in chemistry or biology. That's crazy. That was especially yeah. surprising. But um, <laughs> I figured I would just enter it to learn more, you know, keep up to date on the industry. But but thank you. Yeah, hopefully that made a difference um, in uh, in everything that's happening. Yeah, that that was that was really cool. Uh, I was watching some of the videos afterwards. Uh, one of them you had mentioned was uh, kind of like we live in this amazing time right now, where we can help people around the globe with machine learning to help curb the coronavirus. And I was just like, man, that's like that. Yeah, this is this is unprecedented in very good and bad ways. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's definitely risks. Um, But yeah, I mean, when you think about it, you know, just a guy with his laptop or or a girl with their laptop or anybody um, accessing, you know, if you have a little bit of domain knowledge and a little bit of technical expertise goes a very long way. And I think people underestimate how much you can do with either of those pieces, but certainly underestimate uh, what you can do with those combined. I mean, just, just the basics combined are much stronger than only knowing, you know, the technicals or only knowing the domain. So I did a little bit of research, you know, was was resourceful, um, connected with a few friends who could kind of point me in the right direction. And then, um, you know, just hacked together a solution. Didn't even, didn't really even set up too much on the cloud because it was only working on a few days and I didn't have an infrastructure set up. So just uh, used my gaming laptop's GPU to train the model and uh, slapped it together. Yeah, that's awesome. It was something like uh, I was reading in the news, it was like four days training part of the or generating the compounds. And then there was some time spent. So or you had to be kind of strategic with the remaining time you had left. So you did something where you selectively tested the most diverse molecules. I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So to to start it out, yeah, I trained a, a model to basically be able to create realistic molecules. And so I trained that over the course of four days. It was learning from a set of two and a half million uh, known molecules. And it was learning a a text-based representation of a chain of molecules and how to create one that is actually realistic and, you know, is a, is a molecule that can exist, you know, with the limitations of, of uh, reality being what they are. Um, So that, I trained that for four days and was able to generate, realistic molecules, but those molecules weren't necessarily any good at this specific task of helping with coronavirus. So then mm-hmm. I, lab- I I kind of 
borrowed um, principles from genetic algorithms to take a subset of those molecules, evaluate them for fitness for the task of, of uh, binding with the, with the coronavirus molecule uh, using a program called PyRx. I didn't really do any integration or anything, just kind of manually exporting um, CSVs back and forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that gave me my fitness scores and then pulled that back and then regenerated or retrained or used transfer learning, if you will, to generate molecules the next iteration that were smarter or better at, at specific tasks. So um, yeah, there was a lot of, there's a lot of just like rule of thumbs. And, and I think that's one mistake, especially I see beginners make when they get into this, they're, they're kind of paralyzed, but like, what is the exact right way to build this system. And one of the great things I love about machine learning is that no, there is no exact right way. <laughs> Everything is changing. No one really knows the right answer for sure. Hmm. Uh, and so I just kind of did, you know, how long should I train it for? Well, I'll train it each iteration until it, you know, roughly cuts the error that it had the first iteration in half. Just a rule of thumb type of rough estimate that got me somewhere. You know, I could have spent all two weeks optimizing how long or how short to train it, but mm -hmm. just, Sometimes the most valuable, you know, uh, result is just do something that generally makes sense without biasing it, and then apply that consistently and and uh, and apply the right principles, and you'll you'll end up in a good place. Yeah, you keep you keep uh, mentioning principles. Have you? So I mean, you've you've been drinking the Kool Aid on that for a while, I guess, right? Um, so you're referring to Ray Dalio's. Uh, you know, he wrote a book called Principles. I, I think I worked there for about three years. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have good and bad things to say about it. Overall, loved the experience. Uh, I think principles to me just means, you know, these higher level uh, guidelines that inform how you behave, almost like heuristics in an algorithm, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think people under, just generally in every domain, really underestimate how you do something Mm -hmm. and overestimate what it is, the conclusion you arrived at. You see this mm -hmm. every day, even in politics, right? Like two people can be so close to the same end result, but different because they have the same values or they can have the same end result. They can happen to agree on a, on a topic, but because of totally different reasons. So the next time a different topic comes up, they're at each other's throats. So <laughs> I think in politics, in, in the workplace, but it's certainly in places like data science where we're trying to model understanding, it's much more about how you're approaching a problem, not what it is, what, not what the answer that you found is. Yeah, and would you say that's just, there's no shortcuts, you just have to develop that intuition over time, or can you learn from like a mentor on kind of how to, uh, develop these heuristics? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's definitely a learned skill. I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm naturally a pretty uh, like messy, creative, scatterbrained type of person. Like I have a thousand ideas and then I have to throw them up on a whiteboard and kind of start organizing them visually. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's definitely learned and, and at, at my time at Bridgewater like helped me build up those muscles of, uh, those mental muscles of, you know, th approaching very systematically and very, um, with a with a approach and framework in mind to each problem, and so I think that's definitely something you can practice. It helps if you have people forcing you to do it, but you can just if you you know you can force yourself to build up those uh, mental muscles as well. Yeah, that's that's cool, man. So uh, just for the record, um, when when it came to building your solution, I, I was just doing some research on this. Uh, what was published after? after you had won the contest. So you, you use generative models combined with transferred learning for kind of the first piece. Yeah. 
And then you use the genetic algorithms to kind of uh, dock these in different different ways. Is that what I understand for for each generation? Yeah. So the genetic algorithms came in in terms of evolving the docking, um, evolve, improving the docking scores by evolving the actual molecules that were that are being generated. So okay. I have this algorithm that can, I have this you know RNN recurrent neural network right that can generate realistic molecules, but we need to gradually be generating molecules that are better and better fit to this specific task, to this specific uh, vaccine or rather virus, mm-hmm. not creating a vaccine, creating a, a drug to treat the virus. So um, what that actually looked like was that I, I, again, kind of no one said this was the exact right way to do it. I thought of what am I trying to, what's my measurement of fit? What's my, what am I evaluating for? PyRx gives you something called a binding score. Uh, which in chemistry is basically how likely two molecules are to bind. And so I wanted something that would bind to the coronavirus uh, molecule to prevent it from binding to human cells. So that was one measure of fitness. And then I also did a couple alternative measures of fitness, waiting for other factors, like weighting the score higher if it was a smaller molecule, uh, because apparently in my research I discovered smaller molecules are better, more likely to be absorbed you know, by the human body. Um, and also one uh, that I waited that I can't, uh, oh, uh, based on just similarity scores. So I tried to promote the diversity uh, of the uh, molecules that I was training on by adjusting if this molecule is unlike the top scores that I've already selected mm-hmm. and has a reasonably high score, boost that score and select that one as well. So you get this basket of, of parents, if you will, a genetic algorithm terminology, right, that scored well in one of these fitness uh, measurements, and then they will be the parents for the children of the next generation. And so, how I did that was basically use transfer learning from this network that's good at generating any molecule or just general molecules. Mm-hmm. Train now on make molecules that are more like this set of parents that we know are good at this task. And then I added in some random ones as well, gener- you know, simulating mutation from genetic algorithms. And then, boom, you spit out next the next generation of of uh, children repeat that, evaluate how their fitness, select the ones that should go on to the next, you know, create the next generation. They create the next children, repeat, repeat, repeat. And what I gradually saw was as expected, uh, scores getting better and better um, over through generations. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And kind of the last question I have on this was, so you identified a drug that already exists and uh, that was really cool. But, but what was even possibly cooler was you identified two that don't exist, right? That, that uh, seem to score better with the docking. And so yeah. was, like, is there a way to uh, weight like the, the realisticness of being able to synthesize that or, like the most untechnical way of probably saying that, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and, and again, like this isn't far from my, you know, area of expertise as well. Uh-huh. I learned this terminology, you know, chatting to friends to doing research. And so, there is. I mean, you know, it's pretty unlikely that the two, I, the ones I created that were in theory better than the dr- existing drugs out there are actually, you know, let alone you can make them, but they won't kill you if you take them and they actually do their job, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but this is definitely the future of where the industry is heading, right? They're using this to at least help uh, a human narrow down where their focus should be. Like, okay, well, molecules with these general attributes seem to be getting high scores. So, 
me as the human chemist who's an expert should look at this school of molecule or whatever. You know, that's kind of mm -hmm. the future of where we can get into that later. I mean, I think human augmentation is a really big uh, theme that's coming up more and more. Mm -hmm. But in this specific setting, um, yeah, I mean, there, there are things like solubility, toxicity, um, something called a synthetic assessment score that I would the next step, if I were to keep working on it, would layer those in, and those are also those would also become constraints or you know fitness or measures of fitness to evaluate for. Where the the next uh, you know the the ones that are selected to generate the children uh, take those into account, where they're weighting their scores such that they're uh, not only theoretically effective but also realistic to synthesize. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Well, more, more ideas for somebody that maybe wants to yeah. take the torch from here and it's a, it's publicly available on GitHub. That was another That's thing right. yeah. that I wanted to help promote. So yeah, we'll make sure they got links to all that. So cool, man. That is, awesome. I, I feel uh, humbled to be in your presence. That is freaking <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's really, you know, one of the great things about this industry is that uh, it, it's, you know, you can, with a little effort and creativity and resourcefulness, you know, you can uh, be at the forefront of an industry and realize you know nothing also, you know, right? Uh, very quickly, like with, with an hour of research, you can be, this is one great thing about technology in general and a terrible thing about technology, but an hour of research, you can be one of the leaders uh, in, in that domain. And so um, hmm. and I think people both underestimate and overestimate that fact because and they take people as experts. And as we're seeing now with coronavirus, not either not listening to them or, you know, just blindly listening to people. And both are probably uh, a little bit uh, misled. Yeah, man, that's, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing all that. And I was curious, because um, you, you also do data consultancy and uh, executive coaching, I believe. And uh, I was curious with all the data providers, consultants and tech providers out there, why do people love to do business with you? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, obviously, one we hear, <laughs> as you can imagine, all the time. Yeah. Um, for us, it comes down to you know, a focus on, and I alluded to this earlier, the, the human and the AI. I mean, every leader out there today knows that you know, they've heard the, the phrase, data is the new oil, right? Like everybody knows that data is valuable, that their data is valuable, and these algorithms or solutions or platforms are almost a commodity to run machine learning and AI. You know, you've got you've got AWS, you've got IBM, you've got DataRobot, you got H2O, you've got all those other auto ML players, you've got so many players out there. So the problem isn't a lack of data and it isn't a lack of technology. The problem is really a lack of human expertise and data strategy. These companies don't know what to do with their data, how to maximize its potential, or where to even get started. And so that's why they like to work with someone like us. We can help them on those side of the things. And we bring a you know, hands-on kind of partnership approach where we're coming in and working with you on a long-term recurring basis, growing your internal capabilities, your people, your systems, and your tools so that you in the future can run these projects completely internally without relying on outsourcing or consultants. Um, so we're building that up internally through the process of coaching teams and leaders through actually delivering real world projects. So these businesses deliver a successful AI or data project that pays for itself and they've built up the kind of internal organizational muscle memory to go do this in the future on their own. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. It, it sounds like an awesome resource. Um, uh, when did you first become interested in machine learning? 
Um, I, I, in, in a way, I mean, people say, you know, machine learning is nothing but statistics. And so if you, especially if you subscribe to that uh, mindset, I've always been interested. I mean, I can remember, I think I took my first stats course, like AP stats in, uh, in high school. And I just immediately was, I remember I was also a huge baseball fan at the time. And so I was going home and, you know, running linear regressions on anything you can imagine. <laughs> um, you know, sabermetrics and all that good stuff. Uh, you know, Moneyball was big at the time as well. Um, so, I mean, I, I've always been interested in statistics. I find it cool. I find it something really fulfilling about the sensation of being able to create a model that can anticipate the future or describe something about reality that we didn't know yet or we didn't realize or no one else realizes, right? We can, mm -hmm. just by building this model, we can, um, shape and understand better how to interact with the real world. And that is so, I don't know what about that exactly is exciting to me, but it's just intrinsically exciting to me. And so I've always been interested in stats, um, but mostly uh, got into machine learning specifically after going into the world of finance, you know, algorithmic trading, obviously uh, where I began my career lends itself to that. And I realized in that process that the, you know, the pure finance aspect of it was relatively less interesting to me and the, uh, the underlying pieces that were moving, the technology, the machine learning was more interesting to me. Hmm. Yeah, hearing that baseball story, it sounds like not only were you always interested in stats, but you were interested in applied stats. Like you Absolutely. were born to be like yeah. an applied, uh, you know, working in this applied space. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I have great respect for, you know, academics and PhDs out. I, I'm not going to be the guy who goes and invents the next, you know, uh, method of a neural network. Uh, I have great respect for the people who do that They're much brighter than I am. But personally, I've never understood or never been interested in, in creating something that doesn't have a practical application. Yeah, yeah. man. Yeah. So um, what would you consider your first success with machine learning or stats, I guess, for that matter? My first success. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. <laughs> Gonna go back a ways, I guess. Um, <laughs> my first ever success. I mean, I think it goes back to those days of just you know trying to trying to piece together models and um, and uh, one one area that's all, especially being a baseball fan, you know, creating uh, models to help my uh, fantasy baseball team or. You know, I, did, I did a little bit of sports betting. I think that's hard. That's really hard to beat the bookies. But um, but those those days, you know, were probably my first success a, on a personal uh, scale. And then Excellent. I think on a professional scale, it was definitely once I got into the world of finance and you know, it started to. I mean, it was ultimately my interest in stats that got me the job offer at uh, Bridgewater, and and you know, I, I that set off a lot of my career after that. So. That was probably the most significant uh, first win. Yeah, yeah, amazing, man. Uh, what kind of expectations does someone need to set for themselves when learning to become an applied AI expert? That's a good question. Um, I think there's two elements. You know, I think I've touched on both of them already. But but one is don't fixate too much on. You know, there, that there's this idea of like, this is the only way to do something. Mm -hmm. Yes, you got to get the basics. Yes, you can't, you know, not everyone can just go and like do whatever they want with machine learning or data science. Yes, you do need to, to, to um, fit within the general agreed, you know, 
print, again, principles or guidelines that the industry has. Um, but that being said, people are inventing new architectures and new approaches literally every day. So don't fixate too much on there's only one way to do something. Um, you can borrow and, and, and apply different principles of, or thinking from all different sorts of, of approaches or algorithms or you know, subfields of thought and mix and match them and, um, and, and end up in a, in a good place. If, you, if you're careful and you're also questioning yourself while you're doing it, you, know? you can't mm -hmm. just blindly do it. You have to be worrying about all the time, like, could I be skewing my model this way? So don't worry about the right answer. I guess two, two is always be asking yourself, what biases could I be introducing or what mistakes could I be making? Hmm. And, the, and, the, and the biggest thing there is not necessarily to try and get rid of them, but just acknowledge them, right? Like almost all um, stats, even uh, uh, papers, you know, like medical studies even, they all have a section where they're acknowledging like these are the risks, these are the biases that could have been involved, right? We don't know for sure that this means that X causes Y, but this is one piece of evidence that it does. So just like don't fixate on there's one right way to do something, don't fixate on you know, there, there must be a, a perfect unbiased model out there. So ask yourself what you could be doing wrong and acknowledge it if you can't adjust for it. Don't fixate on something. And then third is don't, especially when it comes to applied versus theoretical, um, learn a domain or use a domain. I, people uh, ask me, how do I learn? How do I get started? And, and they ask me like, which language should I learn or which course should I take to learn machine learning? And I tell them that that's probably not the best approach to take. The best approach is find a project or something you're interested in, like a passion project. It could be, you know, modeling the results of baseball games or football games. It could be generating a new molecule. It could be, you know, maximizing your families, small businesses, you know, sales, whatever it is, find something to aim for and then go out and start building a solution that uses data and machine learning mm. to achieve that, to, to, to reach that goal. You're going to learn so much more and so much more quickly because you're going to hit these problems and then you're just going to Google or go on Stack Overflow or, you know, Kaggle or all these, or, or towards data science or all these great resources and you're going to find the answer and you're going to stumble through it but you're going to get to the other side and you're going to have this fully built solution that um, has a real value right away and that mm. you can take pride in. And it's just going to be so much more motivating also than just sitting there and, and, and going through some dry curriculum that, that you can't really relate to. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's some cool advice. I'm definitely like a, a course, like, call me a connoisseur, call me a junkie. I don't know, but I go, I go through all of them, man. I'm like an O'Reilly. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, if, if that works for you, then do that. <laughs> I've certainly done a, 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 you know, a ton of courses online. I, I, think, mm -hmm. I think when you're, when you're very first learning, it definitely helps to take at least one course, you know, get the, the, the very fundamentals going. Cause if you don't know the very basic fundamentals, you don't even know what you don't know, right? You don't even know, most importantly, you don't even know how to ask a question. Mm. right yeah but if you learn just the basic stuff where you can if you get stuck you can ask google like okay how do i you know how do i classify this or how do i predict a time series right if you've never even learned the basics and you just google like how do i increase my sales or how do i predict baseball matches right like that's impossible right yeah. so you gotta, learn, you gotta learn the terminology and the basics enough to know what to ask but really that's all you need to learn from a course or at least for me that's what i found 
That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, what actions, and there's a chance that you are already answering these. You have like predictive <laughs> foresight on my, my questions, but, uh, what actions can someone take that solves like 80% of the challenge of becoming an applied AI expert? What actions can they take to solve it? Yeah. Like the Pareto, the, the Pareto principle, I guess. Um, I think, I guess I would answer like this very similarly to the last question. Is, mm -hmm. is, there, a specific, is there a specific way you see the, the, this is different than, than just generally how to, how to pick it up? Uh, yeah. I mean, like if you, I guess, and there's a very, there's like a high probability that we already covered this. I just wanted sure. to, I guess, just nail it home. Like yeah. if you were kind of new to this, um, what is like, 80% of the challenge of like getting up to speed that you could just kind of like focus on these couple of things and you'd be like, you know, there, you, there wouldn't be much. The 80, 20. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like if you had a hundred hours and maybe, you know, like diminishing returns after like 80 hours or something. Right, like right, that, right. So. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I mean, I think that that one thing would be again, um, Focusing on a on a project and building out a solution for that project. I mean, I don't want to sound like a beating a dead horse, but I think no, it, it's a, it's excellent. I love it's it. Just, it's just not some. I think most people are so attuned to like if I want to learn a skill, like I go take a class. Like yeah, that one that is one way to learn a skill. It certainly can be effective. It's certainly. I'm not saying don't do it, but another alternative way to learn the skill is just go out and struggle with something and try to to build something. Hmm. Um, so I would say in doing that, you're, you'll have a lot of value. And if I picked only one thing, that would be the one kind of approach that I would, or, or point I would want people to take away. Excellent. And um, if I, just to like fully exhaust this like thought <laughs> experiment here, yeah. if, what if we inverted that and I said, what actions, uh, what, what is kind of like overly difficult when learning applied AI that mm -hmm. newcomers should just totally avoid starting out? I think, you know, I, I've, I've made light of um, the value of, of uh, domain expertise and, and technology. I've said, you know, just a little bit goes a long way. Mm -hmm. and that's generally true, but there is a risk in taking that too far. I mean, I, I see people who, again, don't know um, enough of the domain to know what they don't know. And so they're just making these like wildly ridiculous assumptions or like saying this model, you know, solves this whole crisis or can like predict stock prices perfectly. And they've made this super basic, you know, error. And like they included, you know, the, the price that they're trying to predict in their training data. So um, I think respect the domain that you're going into. Mm -hmm. um, like I, again, f taking this competition, for example, um, with, uh, with generating the drugs to treat coronavirus, like I, nowhere did I ever claim to be an expert. Like I mean, it's clear in the GitHub, it's clear in my repo, like it's clear to everyone. Uh, I want to be respectful of the domain. And I also did, you know, hours of research up front to try and grapple with these ideas and concepts. And so um, I don't, I didn't have any delusions that like I would be inventing a drug that could immediately treat coronavirus. I was creating something that could be, a building block for someone else to come and you know who knows more about the domain and build off of and so hmm. the flip side of it is respect the domain that you're going into yeah 
important applied AI. And if you don't take it seriously, um, you know, if it's in a business setting, you're not going to get clients, you're not going to close deals, you might not get a job, you know, offer. Um, and if it's in, a, in any setting, really, it's just going to make you look um, like you don't know what you're doing and shed, you know, a negative light on you. Wow. Yeah. Immediately after you started saying that, it kind of reminded me, somebody told me once upon a time, like ego is the most dangerous thing to have in business. And so that's, it's like a form of what you're saying is like, yeah, if you don't respect the domain, you kind of have an ego about, you know, that's that's a great way. That's a great way to put it. I mean, I think you should all data scientists, you know, people have so many different uh, definitions for that term and so many different people, but I like to think of it as, data scientist, right? A scientist, someone who applies the scientific method. You have a hypothesis, you ask questions to try and disprove it, and you use data to do that. It Mm. all starts with asking questions. And so if you're ever coming into something, assuming you know the answer, rather than asking questions, that's a good sign that you're not starting off on the right foot. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Man, that's, that's profound. Thank you for sharing that. Like you, I think you just got, anybody listening to the podcast, you, I think you just got your money's worth right there. Like, and if you already knew it, that's an excellent reminder. So yeah, cool, man. Um, what is your algorithm to become profitable in six months from now, if you had to start from scratch or like attempting to become profitable in six months, starting from scratch? Yeah. I mean, I think it was a great question. And to, to answer this in a meta level, because um, when you asked this, it, it, you know, it, uh, you asked this, and this was one of the questions you sent to kind of prep for the show. Yeah, the pre-interview. Uh, so the listeners mm-hmm. are confused what, what I'm referring to. Yeah, and so it made me reflect, like, what would I do, you know, if I was uh, just starting out? And I realized that it wasn't that different than what I would do now. And so that was a good, like, okay, like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm benchmarking myself. And so the, the meta answer is, this is something you should be constantly doing, like, every three months or six months is asking yourself, like, what would be the optimal thing to do um, hmm. if I was, uh, you know, if I was uh, starting out, um, and and how can I grow from where I am? But, but yeah, I mean, we've to to put things in perspective, we've had success. You know, we've had previous clients, but we can always grow faster. And a lot of our um, growth as a company has been, you know, kind of one to one referrals or personal referrals, face to face type of stuff mm-hmm. that isn't super uh, scalable. And so. Uh, what we are trying to make an effort on is is making our business a bit more scalable and what that looks like. And so what that looks like and also what I would try to do to become profitable if I was just starting art, starting out, it's pretty similar. I would just start creating, you know, creating content, putting my name out there, learning about a domain um, and, and learning the basics of a domain and the basics of data science. So if you're just starting out, um, you might feel like you don't have any any value to add, uh, it, you know, when I say create content, like people are like, well, I don't, there's already so many great blogs or things out there, but there, think about the, you know, think about the number of people who, uh, who know data science and machine learning, right? And then think about the number of people who know a given, um, a given industry. And that Venn diagram overlap starts getting very small, very quickly. If you go into even subfields of each of those, like this mm. specific type of algorithm or, or image recognition or NLP, in you know this type of e-commerce right so if if you put in the effort and um you know spend just even just a few hours like researching in a very targeted way Mm -hmm. and then build something out you can have something that like you know without any exaggeration very few other people on earth can really speak to or have done or have worked with or have thought about necessarily so Hmm. 
that would be what I would suggest. And again, if it overlaps with a personal interest or a personal project, like much, much better, all the better for it because then you'll be motivated to do it. But that's the way I would go. So uh, try to find those overlaps that you're interested in. That will drive your learning and that will drive, uh, give you, you know, content to create. And then when you share that content, people will perceive you as an expert. Like this guy actually knows what he's talking about in my field and you'll probably get some job offers or leads, you know, the conversations will grow out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be, that would be my strategy. Awesome, man. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, why did you choose to create a company that does consultancy and executive coaching instead of some sort of done for you implementation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we, I think there's two answers real brief. I mean, the auto ML type of space is, is just super crowded. And as I, uh, was saying earlier, I think it's kind of almost to the point of like where the algorithms are becoming a commodity. It's kind of like plug and play, like anybody can, you know, throw a, a given algorithm at a problem. Um, where the value comes in is understanding kind of the, the more esoteric feature engineering and, and strategy approach to the problem. Um, so, so one, I think, is that, that that's where the relative uh, need versus com- competition currently is. And the other is we actually have tried to do more of like a development agency business model or like a build a product type of model. We probably even rushed the, you know, building a product or we didn't probably, we definitely rushed that. And it's, it's just very difficult. It's very difficult to build a, a pre-built product out of the box that um, solves enough people's problems well enough that they need it, but also not so specific to their problem that it's not generalizable, you know, to other uh, clients. And so Hmm. a problem we've struggled with it in the past and and the long-term vision is that in working with many different uh, companies and clients, we'll start to notice themes and consistent pockets and, you know, just naturally organically start developing tools, you know, the principles like eat your own dog food tools that these clients are using where if it goes, according to plan, it's not going to be like, you know, okay, we have this idea, let's go out and raise venture capital and launch this product. It'll be, it'll be more like we're doing our projects, we're doing our projects, we're doing our projects. And all of a sudden, boom, we have this, you know, not not all of a sudden, but gradually we have this SaaS that five existing customers are already paying for. Right. So that's the long-term kind of goal and thought, Um, but it's difficult to do that. And I perceive that to be more in the space of, of the, of data, preparation or cleaning or strategy rather than um, just a, like an end-all-be-all algorithmic type of platform. Okay, excellent. Yeah, that's, uh, I, th- I think there's a huge nugget um, for business building that you just shared there. It's kind of like you're, you're focusing on delivering very specialized value right now, but you're also conducting surveillance to see what sort of patterns could kind of be productized down the line. So you're instead of trying to come up with like the magic product, this is what I'm hearing from you at least. And I think, I think that's a really insightful for anyone out there that's trying to build their business. This just consider maybe going this route, you know, full disclosure. That's one of the reasons why I started the podcast because I wanted to learn about the audience and what they'd be receptive to. So yeah, when I see one podcast has more views than the other, I'm like, okay, they must like this. And that's kind of like what you're in a sense. I mean, that it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, 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 the typical like startup, you know, have an idea, raise money and then build it type of thought process is, is one, not re- I don't know if it was ever realistic Two, certainly not <laughs> as realistic today, Yeah, three, but it's just hard. You know, it, it, it's, it's not necessarily worth going for the risk reward profile doesn't make sense for most, the vast majority of people, whereas building a, a so-called, you know, lifestyle business, right? Like one where you can draw an income from, you don't necessarily need to raise capital to do it. it, it it's cash flow positive. That can be, that can make you, you know, a decent living or, or possibly much more than that. Where mm-hmm. The risk reward profile is much better in 99.999% of cases than the startup. And it doesn't need to be mutually exclusive, right? That can be, as you're saying, that, that lifestyle business can be a almost like a, you're getting paid to do market research and develop relationships with future clients for an ex, uh, a future startup uh, mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. yeah, it's there's there's so much good about that. I, I uh, yeah. the more I think about it, I just love it. So uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks thanks for sharing that. That's really cool. Um, why do you think companies will be much more serious about data and business results in the next? six to 12 months. This was something on the pre-interview that you had mentioned. I didn't know if it was like coronavirus related or some other trend well, that you saw. I, I think it's definitely, um, I'm definitely coronavirus, you know, on my mind, the, the economic fallout in specific, you know, specifically not necessarily the, the health or, or any um, thing to do with the virus itself per se. But what we've noticed before, um, you know, the, this uh, took off the last couple months mm-hmm. were trends that companies had largely gone through, you know, a first wave of projects where they had just kind of thrown darts at a dartboard. We noticed themes like they would, a lot of companies had like hired a team or a department of data scientists, not really changed anything else and had expected everything to suddenly, everything to suddenly change and then nothing changed because the data scientists, you know, didn't have access to data or were hired to do like Excel when they're, when they're data scientists, right? Or we're hired to do data engineering. And so um, we've noticed companies taking a much more mature approach to it where they realized, you know, okay, we have to actually invest time and money into the ecosystem, into the infrastructure, into changing our culture, as well as just hiring the right talent. And mm-hmm. also a m- much more focus on augmenting humans rather than automating humans. Um, the first projects were like a lot of pie in the sky type of, we'll automate our entire business. And what businesses didn't realize is that not only is that more difficult to do in most cases, but um, a lot of people are just subconsciously even resistant to that in the organization. Um, and so it just creates a very negative, like fear-based uh, culture almost within the organization where people are antagonistic towards the data scientists or whoever, you know, machine learning engineers, whichever you know, term you prefer, mm-hmm. because there's this, impl- even if it's not explicit on the surface, there's this implicit distrust of, okay, you're going to build something that's going to replace me one day, or you're going to build something that's going to make it obvious, like where my weaknesses are, because um, it's going to tell, it's going to be improving, you know, certain things in my job, or, or at least highlighting on a dashboard. So there's a lot of trust that goes into it. And so that element of it, I think companies are starting to take more seriously. And then this coronavirus, uh, you know, hit, and now this is just coming. Will be even more of an issue as once the economy you know, starts to return to normal. I think companies are going to need to get leaner, need to get more serious, uh, and will realize that it's an investment in their people and technology that makes the difference between who lasts and who 
gets washed out in these in these uh, kind of downturns. And so hmm. I anticipate that after this initial shock has worn off, there'll be a, a big wave of innovation in general, but especially in to data and the combination of AI and people um, hmm. in the, in the, hopefully in the next year. Yeah, that that uh so you had mentioned the difference between like automating and augmenting and I yeah. think it's starting to click now because in the pre-interview you had mentioned something along the lines of like trust being like the the main currency in business and and also the main disconnect between academia and real life it's like the the it, that's that is the differentiator is trust and so anyway I it, I thought it was it was uh, profound what you were talking about. Like if we can just help them to learn that we're, we're here to augment their enhance or uh, augment instead of like, yeah, you know, automate them out Axel. of the job. And yeah. But yeah. I mean, I, I think that's definitely, definitely um, true. I mean, you know, not to knock academia, but oftentimes in academia, you're given a data set and there's very little, you know, constraints other than, the data and the technology that you're working with. And in business, there are so many other constraints, right? There's, do people even want to give me the data? Like once they give me the data, do they help me understand it? Like once I make a system for them, do they even use it? Are they willing to sit with me and help me understand why they won't use it? You know, there, there's so many things and they, are, and they all go back to people and people all go back to you know, relationships which are built on trust, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good to keep it's good to keep in the forefront of your mind, and it makes a lot of sense. So thanks for sharing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. What is the uh, big domino that you are knocking over to double your business year over year for the next few years? Yeah, I mean, I wish uh, I could tell you. <laughs> no, I mean, I think there's always like you have your best guesses, and then in hindsight, you were like, "Yep, yeah, that's 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 what it was." You know, a bit of yeah. bias and any entrepreneurism. Um, but uh, for us, I think the, the big one is uh, we really up until this point have been um, you know, pushing our message out there, right? Like uh, uh, cold calling or, or, or referrals, you know, uh, getting our name in front of people rather than uh, pulling, rather than having incoming type of traffic. And so our uh, we have a big focus on this year is, is getting our names out there specifically in the form of creating value add content. So um, sharing on LinkedIn, you know, sharing um, on probably mediums like this on podcasts, you know, helping to helping to hopefully help some people uh, learn how to, how to code and, you know, use data science. And so um, that I think is a big key because one of the things that we've realized, you know, the hard way is anytime you're running a business, um, you can never stop selling and so much of it is implicitly sales. And as much as we'd like to think that the product that we're providing or the service that we're providing is what people buy, really people are buying um, you know, the, the whole package. They're buying how the thing is sold just as much, if not more than what it is that is being sold. And so hmm. we're, we've, we were in a fortunate position where we've before, you know, the slowdown now, last couple of years, we've worked with some big clients, we have some big names, we have some case studies, we have some successes that we can lean into, you know, create materials, create some original content and start sharing some of our learnings and some of the templates and frameworks and approaches that we've developed that have worked in these settings with the community and use those as kind of almost like, almost akin to like how a startup would open source their code 
like once they build something that's a useful tool for them mm -hmm. into that like open source our thinking and that just brings so much value in the long run to the community and to that company uh, usually that um you know you just start growing exponentially from there so so that's i, I think that answers it clear hopefully that answers yeah it. for sure that's it, it really sounds like it's taking it to the next level uh yeah. getting that incoming traffic and then um it's it takes a little um you have to have like a mindset of abundance if if you're willing to be like all right we're going to show you what's going on under the hood here how we how we think and how we do things and that's pretty awesome like like i'm sitting here right now being like i'm going to be subscribing i'm going to figure out where to go <laughs> cuz that that insight would directly impact my ability to be bet, uh, be a better solution provider at my work. And then, sure. I mean, I have big dreams of like, you know, being my own boss one day too. So All right, uh, awesome. yeah, that's, I mean, I'm, I am, uh, you're, you're an amazing human, man. I'm, I'm excited to see what you produce going forward. So. Well, much appreciated. I mean, I, I think um, people just, I think people underestimate, you know, when you, sh they, they, they want to hold, like they have this idea that if I put out my real value, like people will just take, or my secret sauce, right? People will just take it. Um, and certainly that's true in some aspects, right? If you have some like patent or something, but, but mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's your thinking, if it's your expertise, if it's your, you know, uh, a product or service, um, it's hard for other people to just blind, like pick up what, what you've given them and just apply it immediately. Like, yes, there might be some companies that will take what we give them for free, and use it and have great success and never need us. But there's gonna be also a lot more companies that would never have heard of us if we didn't that need help applying it or evolving it or adapting it for their specific circumstance. Yeah. So, uh, and, and there's so many companies out there, we, we couldn't service every company in the world. So it's okay if we lose some, you know, taking our best thinking, we're gonna get a lot more um, in general. Yeah, I guess that goes back to the abundance mindset. But, yeah, no, yeah. I, I love it because like uh, eventually somebody's going to come along that's like, hey, this sounds great. I don't have time to figure out, you know, go through the next like five years of pain to right. uh, figure it out. And uh, who better to show me than the guy or the team that invented it? So it right. makes a lot of sense, like what you're saying. So yeah, that's awesome. Uh, what is the driver behind the shift of user data harvesting? to more of a, a sharing collective benefits of data. You had mentioned something about this in the pre-interview. Yeah, so, um, so I mentioned previously one of the major themes we've seen uh, evolving you know, in the industry is this augmentation versus automation aspect. Another one, you know, on the same level of thought of that general theme, another underlying theme to the entire industry is a shift to how data is treated and thought about. And this is mainly driven by regulation like GDPR, um, which has, you know, put a lot of restrictions on or at least brought to the cultural forefront, like how, who has my data and what are they using it for? Mm -hmm. uh, ma mainly regulation driven, but also also consumer, you know, just grassroots backlash type of driven, like anytime there's a, a breach, like the Experian breach comes to mind, um, or just any kind of weird overstep. Another good example is uh, uh, Target. Um, I don't know if, any, if people are familiar with this story, but Target basically uh, was working on, you know, a recommendation engine for their catalog of products, and they started um, sending uh, e-coupons, so in a, in a mailer, to a teen, uh, a teenage girl 
and they were adver- they were basically giving her coupons for like diapers and baby products. And her father got really upset, you know, with Target asking why they, who the hell, like, why are you sending my teenage daughter <laughs> yeah. coupons for diapers? And it ended up that the, she actually was pregnant. Oh, she, wow. They found it, the family found out like a month later. And so that was an example of Target's algorithms picking up on something from her shopping habits, picking up that she was pregnant before even she knew that she was pregnant, right? Wild. So this like that is not necessarily the best user experience, which is another thing I think people forget about. Like when you're building, that's another difference between academia and the real world. Like you're not building an algorithm. You're not optimizing for accuracy. You're optimizing for user experience. So in this case, what Target actually did was they ended up watering down the accuracy of their recommendation engine. They actually reduced the you know, technical fit or goodness of their, of their algorithm so that mm. the end user experience was better and less creepy and less uh, you know, big brotherish. And so this yeah. is a perfect example of there's, there's this backlash and kind of, you know, just consumer behavior of, I don't, it, it makes me uncomfortable that companies know this much about me or know things about me before I do. Yeah. Uh, but also a regulatory backlash that are both driving this more and more attention on, who has data, what data do they have, and what are they using it for? And so we see uh, a lot, you know, a lot, of comp- a lot of people think like, oh, because of GDPR, like no one can do data analysis or machine learning anymore. No, that's not really the case, right? You just need to incentivize it the right way instead of exploiting the user, like give us your data so we can monetize off of you. Uh, creating structures that incentivize the user to share their data and sh- so that they share in the mutually created network effect of everyone contributing that data. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that, that sounds like an exciting future. Hopefully. I mean, there's, there's also <laughs> the complete opposite dystopian future that I think is probably more likely, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. They say that's the sign of a billionaire where you can kind of play those games at the same time in your head. Well, I'm still working on that part, but yeah, let's see. So, um, what is the biggest learning moment for you after going through the brutal process of raising and pitching VCs for capital? Oh man, I would say the, the biggest one is just uh, as simple as it sounds, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out is everything. Hmm. Um, and it, it, I think when people hear that, they tend to take it to surface level. I don't mean like, you know, you can just like throw together a pitch deck and be like, I'm, you know, unless you pitch as well as Adam Newman, you know, founder of WeWork, like you're going to have a hard time with that, right? So it's, it's definitely about FOMO is everything, but it doesn't mean just you can you know, make stuff up and, and, and fool people into investing. Really, it's about building your business to the point where whether you can, to the point where you can go into a potential investors, um, you know, meeting, a meeting with them and say, look, here are my numbers. Here's the business, how fast it's growing. It's going to grow if you invest or not, right? But you're going to make money if you invest. I'm going to make money both ways. Do you want to invest, right? So it's really about growing your business and getting your business to a point where like, holy shit, like I got to invest in this business. Otherwise I'm going to miss this opportunity. It's all about creating I don't know. Sorry, I don't know. If I dropped the uh, curse. That's all good, man. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's all about building your business. You know, you can unless you again, unless you're like the next Adam Newman. Um, don't focus so much on the pitch. Focus on building a business where the fundamentals around it are like, I have to invest in this business. Mm. And then it's really hard to mess up the pitch. The pitch writes itself, um, and it's and, and that's what you know we struggled with. You know, just to be to be transparent. I mean, it, it's really 
hard to pitch a business, especially these days where you need kind of any kind of upfront capital or um, wide scale kind of partnerships or network effect before you can really um, uh, generate substantial revenue. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these days, especially, you know, you want to build a business that's generating revenue and without the investor's money, you might grow slower or you will grow slower, but you're still going to make money. And the investor is just adding fuel to the fire. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really awesome insight. Uh, I hope to be able to leverage that uh, advice one day. So. Yeah. I hope, uh, I hope so too. <laughs> that's cool, man. So um, what is your attitude uh, towards, uh, working with close-minded people. Oh man, <laughs> I mean, uh, my uh, fiance, uh, you know, uh, docks me all the time for uh, being quick to judge people. But uh, but I'm of the mindset that you know anyone can change, but it requires that person uh, they they have to want to change for them to change. You can't make people change, and so. Um, I try to approach, you know, working with people, um, assuming that they're open-minded from that basis and, you know, um, helping them and also, and also being realistic, like people, especially in data, as I, as I mentioned, oftentimes people's gut reaction, if they don't, especially if they're not familiar with data or technology is, is one of fear. They're literally coming from a place of fear. Mm -hmm. So they're going to start out being more closed-minded than they probably are normally. And so when you're working with these people, it's about building trust. It's about demonstrating, you know, no, no, I'm not here to, you know, be your enemy. I'm here to work together and grow this company. And, and I need, like, I'm not replacing them. I literally need you to help me understand the data, to help me build a solution, to help use the solution, to help the solution improve, right? I'm going to make your life easier and make you more important, all else equal. Um, and so, um, Hmm. So, so approaching it from a place of empathy. Now, that being said, um, you know, sometimes we have people we work with or, or even whole customers, right? Whole, whole companies that just don't get it, right? They're, they're just, um, they're stuck in their old ways. They're not open to any kind of change. You know, you, you, you find, like maybe if we kept investing our time, we would find the right way to, to you know, pit, position our messaging or the right uh, medium to communicate with them. But it's not about, you know, life, your time is limited. And so it's okay to move on uh, just because you're judging, you know, this situation or this person is like, I can't, you know, I, I haven't found the right way to work with them. It doesn't mean like you're saying that they're necessarily a terrible person or that like they should, you know, it's just, it's just saying that you and them should not be working together in this moment. So <laughs> I think that's also been a painful lesson is, you know, you, yeah. you have to, you've got to balance the, help the empathy and helping people open up with the, at some point you need to recognize that I'm just sinking costs and you know, talking to this client. Like it's been six months and they're still saying, well, you know, we, we like AI, we like machine learning, but we can't find the budget or now's not the right time. Like it's never going to be the right time if that's mm -hmm. their response. And hmm. they're the only ones who can convince themselves at the right time, right? They need to have some wake up call and realize, Oh crap! Like it's an urgent problem, and we need to. We should have acted a year ago, but we need to act now. And very, there's very little you can do from the outside to make them feel that way. Again, FOMO is everything. Um, sometimes people need to have their own sense of FOMO. Yeah, man, that's. And I guess it's different for everyone. You just gotta kind of feel it out. Like, 
when do you kind of kill your darlings? So like, if you, if you think this is a good way and certainly, and, and then realize like, Oh no, this is, this is no longer worth the pursuit. And then uh, certainly like, don't be doing things just because it's like, you've already put in this effort for the last yeah. six months. So oh, you, God, yeah. like there's, there's so the many cost, little landmines and stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, sunk cost fallacy is so misunderstood. It drives me nuts. It's, I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, we don't have to get into it, but, uh, but yeah, that is something that everyone listening to this podcast should research if you don't know what it is because people mix it up all the time. And, and it's really like, I, I, I see it probably on a weekly basis. Uh, is, it can be hugely expensive. Hmm. Um, Wow. Yeah. That's, it's good to, good to know kind of the landscape that we're operating in there. So, um, how do you, uh, Oh, we did kind of, we did talk about the trust thing. So I'm going to skip, I'm going to skip over that one. Um, if, uh, if somebody is feeling like they've commoditized themselves, what advice do you have for them to kind of get out of that rut? That's a great question. I mean, um, for me, this, I can most relate to this thinking about when I, left uh, finance and wanted to branch out more into the, the tech world in general, but you know, uh, specifically, you know, data science and machine learning world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what I got when I did that was a lot of people, try, people, recruiters, you know, companies, everybody, people, but I mean, pretty much everything are trying to box me into like, okay, you're coming from finance. So, you know, these things and these are your skills and this is what you're good at. And so, we are, um, our whole economy and, and job structure uh, is set up to treat people like a, like a list of skills, like a, you know, like a, like a fitting into a very defined box. Like you are this, you are, you are a data scientist or you are a merchandiser or you are an engineer. Um, and it's not very good at evaluating people for their abilities, right? You are good at creative thinking or you are good at, um, uh, logical reasoning or you are good at leadership um, those things are arguably more difficult to evaluate which is why I think you know we've looked at skills like those are shorter payoffs and a little bit easier to evaluate mm-hmm. like you can more easily test for skills right you either know something or you don't but if you have an ability to learn something quickly whether you know something right away when you get hired or not doesn't really matter and I think that is a is very applicable in this case of if you feel that you've got hmm. yourself stuck in something um, commoditizable, it's what you're probably referring to is that your skills are viewed as a commodity, right? Like you're, you can do Excel and now everybody in the world can do Excel, right? Or, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So don't stop selling yourself and developing your skills per se and start reframing a narrative and start selling yourself based on your abilities and do something tangible like have a project or something you can put in the portfolio that backs up your words that demonstrates that you do have those abilities, right? So if I'm trying to say that I can learn something really quickly, I need to have a portfolio that shows like, even though I can come from finance, I have this project that I did in the domain of uh, insurance or e-commerce or, you know, medicine or whatever it is that mm-hmm. I just built a week before, you know, I sent in this job application or, you know, made this, went to this interview. So start selling yourself and your abilities and reframe your narrative from a place of abilities rather than skills. Cool. Yeah. That's uh, that's super actionable. Thank you. Yeah. Um, if uh, what, Oh, so you had mentioned something about Apache superset and I had been dabbling with this project 
at my work. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. So are you uh, like, what excites you about that? Or are you using it in production? Or is it just kind of like, it looks cool? Like, what's your take on this whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've used it a bit about um, my, my co-founder is actually uh, the one who originally got me excited about it. He's used it way more than I have. But I, I mean, I just think it's, um, I mean, my co-founder um, went through, uh, he worked at a, a startup where he had to use tools like Tableau and all these dashboarding tools. And, and every time he hears them now, he just rolls his eyes. And I think people, one, one thing that excites me so much about Apache <laughs> Superset is people don't realize that like all these super expensive tools, you can do those and much, much more with literally open source software. Yeah. And with Apache Superset, one of the great, it's almost like the Linux of dashboarding. So in theory, yes, it's like you get less support than Windows, right? Like you, but you also have this giant passionate community of developers behind Linux or behind Apache Superset that is creating um, content. So there's a lot of pre-built templates and stuff that is almost as easy as to integrate as Tableau that's just out of the box. So that's one of the things that excites me about it. It's just so powerful. You can do so much with it. It's completely free. It's so customizable um, and it's so undervalued. Yeah. I, so in the oil and gas industry, like Spotfire is kind of like the, you know, like that's what, and, and they, they keep, they, they'll reach out to me and I'm like, you guys got to check out Superset. And they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) It's pretty much, it's going to put, I mean, if it really catches on, I, I think it would, it would definitely give those people a run for their money. Yeah. Yeah. So. But yeah, that was cool. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I'm trying to wrap my my mind around the uh, the innovation that the I think it's called the Shapely Additive Explanations Project. Yes. Uh, can you help me kind of understand that uh, in the audience a little more? I've been waiting to speak about this part because this brings <laughs> us to my third uh, mega trend that I see in. The okay. Year. So. One was uh, you know, automation, augmentation versus automation. The second is more responsible you know, data practices. And the third is a really big one about more uh, easily explainable or interpretable AI or machine learning systems. Because in a lot of industries, you know, the so-called black box where, well, we give the AI this data and then an answer comes out that we can prove mathematically or statistically is accurate or we expect to be accurate X percent of the time but we don't really know how it got to there. A lot of industries, that's like not even, not necessarily the best practice. That's not even necessarily legal, right? In, in compliance or in right. the finance industry, for example, you might be re- required by regulators to ex- be able to explain that you made a certain trade or you managed your client's money because of X, Y, and Z. You can't just say like, well, I don't know, the algorithm said to buy shares of Apple, so I bought shares of Apple, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, so for multiple reasons, there's a big focus on understanding the reasoning behind um, why decisions are being made, you know, going inside the black box. And this is a library, this is a project that is super exciting because it just in a very clear uh, visualization lets you tease out and see which factors uh, contributed in which degree and which amount and which magnitude to the ultimate decision that the AI made, right? So if the AI is predicting there's a 70% chance this is fraud, um, you can see exactly which factors contributed so that it reached that conclusion, which has mm. so many benefits. And it just does it in such a beautiful, easy way to visualize that all, even non, the, even you know, business people, even non-technical people can, can understand it. And it really helps go a long way 
in though that audience understanding and being acceptive of machine learning because one of the biggest hurdles in the applied world of AI is again you, you build this awesome system but the humans who are supposed to be using it don't trust it or don't understand how it works and therefore you know don't trust it or don't use it and this this helps overcome that yeah that uh that that sounds awesome one of the things that i've kind of struggled with on the machine learning end is just like i can go through the tutorials and usually the data sets are fairly curated there might be <laughs> you know depending on, on uh what kaggle challenge you're working on you know but the yeah. um man just developing the intuition with what the heck is going on i just I lack that. And everyone that I talk to, they're like, oh, yeah, that's normal. But I, it sounds like this tool would actually maybe provide you some more insight on intuition when you're, when you're working with this stuff going forward. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, um, not, not necessarily as you're working with it, but definitely once you've built out the hmm. system and then maybe going back and re re rethinking about why did I do that, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So uh, what attributes do you look for in the people that you hire or that, that you choose to have on your team? Yeah. So I look for, you know, skills. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I preach abilities, but hire me skills. Yeah. No. I try, you know, I try to hire, again, I try to, you know, um, hire for abilities over uh, things like what you know. And so I hire people who are um, driven, uh, and who are just naturally curious and a curiosity, especially, well, for both, actually for both a data scientist and for, you know, a non-technical person, mm -hmm. probably the most important attribute because you need to be always digging and asking, you know, why is this the case? Why is this the case? How do we, you know, if you're just saying one of the common problems is, um, you know, business person will walk up to the data scientist and ask them something that can easily be solved by a data query, like, you know, what were our top sellers last month? the data scientist thinks to themselves like, why did I take this job? If this is all I have to do. And the business person thinks, why do we even hire this data scientist if this is all they can do? Right. So, mm. but if you have, if you have a business person and a data scientist who both are curious and both ask why and both understand when someone else asks them why and don't take it like in the front to their ego, you know, that conversation goes very differently. Like what were our top sellers last month? Why? Well, because I want to see what sales are growing. And it's like, why? Well, because I think that if we bundle, certain project products together will actually increase our sales. So, you know, why? I mean, you can keep going, but, but notice mm -hmm. how the conversation shifts from being this just bland data poll that anyone who knows SQL can do to being this like fundamental question of how do, if we answer it, we have an insight into how to directly increase sales for the company. So mm. curio curiosity is a huge factor. Um, and then the other big one I look for is just your passion. I, especially when it comes, like when it comes to someone who codes or, you know, is a developer of any kind, I don't look for someone who is just, um, is just, you know, doing a nine to five. I look for someone who is coding on their own time. They have a passion project. They have a side hustle. Some people are worried by that. I actually like to see that. I want someone who is always learning and is always, um, you know, improving, not because they're forced to, but because they like to do that. Mm -hmm. Those are two of the biggest attributes. And I think the third one is just, you know, transparency and honesty and, and, um, and you know, a lot of the open-mindedness and, and not being so egotistical uh, that mm -hmm. we also talked a lot about. Yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah. That's uh, there, there's a, uh, it just kind of came back to me with the 
uh, principles book where they have like thought, thoughtful disagreement. Yeah. And I, I, have you ever seen that like go wrong? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, like, like how do you, yeah. I mean, the, cult, <laughs> the culture isn't for everybody and you know, being that off the leash can, can, you know, lead to some people taking it too far. So, so yes, it, it can go wrong. But I think the, the general thing that I try to, especially as a manager, like when you're managing people, this is also very important is detach yourself from your ideas. So throw out an idea and then you should be as big a critic of that idea as any other idea. You should have no bias to that idea anymore, right? It's, hmm. it's something that exists, not your idea. And so the flip side of that is if someone else has an idea, right? I can tear it to pieces, but if it's a good idea, I should be immediately willing and able to accept it. And so I see a lot of managers who bias towards you know, defending their own ideas and a lot of, a lot of people in general, and uh, they miss out on the good ideas and they don't promote this healthy discussion because the employees learn that, okay, the manager just wants to do what they do anyway, so they don't even either bother sharing their good ideas. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the other thing you were mentioning about like the, 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 how the conversation, if you ask why and you're inquisitive, like it's a whole different conversation than if you're just like, Oh, uh, sure. I'll go run that, that sequel for you or something like that. Um, I'm, I'm reading a book right now called beyond the obvious and they're basically, it's a, it's like the art of question asking. And, uh, the guy that wrote it is basically, uh, like that's where all his innovation has come from. He, he was, some sort of like innovation expert at HP, but okay. it kind of really parallels with what you're saying. Like becoming good with asking these questions is where you get the innovation. And so that's, I think that's really powerful that that's kind of one of the attributes that you seek out because you're kind of destined for innovation. If you hire a culture, that's like question askers, you know, yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you got to balance that with, you know, implementers and doers. You can't just all be, sitting around, you know, pontificating all day. <laughs> but, uh, that, yeah, that would be funny too. But, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I'll definitely have to check beyond the obvious. Beyond the obvious. Yeah, I got a, uh, I know I got a, I think it's by my bed right now. I'm like marking okay. it up big time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll make sure that you, uh, I'll, I'll send you a message or, or something okay, after cool. the, the podcast there. For but sure. uh, what attributes do you look for in the people you coach? Like the clients, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the biggest one goes back to you know, a theme we've talked about is open-mindedness. Um, it's, it's immensely frustrating, but also just not useful to the client themselves for us to come in and help them and then they don't, you know, use it. They don't take any grit. Like, and, and I'm not saying we're never to blame or like we're perfect. You know, obviously there's always things we can do better ways we can communicate better, ways we mm -hmm. can get ideas better. But we look for, is this person serious, right? Are they, are they willing and do they realize that when it comes to data and machine learning, especially innovation, um, it's an investment in time as, and resources, right? Like if you, even when you have data, there's a lot of time and effort in cleaning and preparing that data. And if you don't have data, there's a lot of time and opportunity cost in, in, in generating that data, doing like A-B testing and things where your business is potentially even running suboptimally to what it was before in order to experiment and try new things and generate data so mm. that you can eventually optimize and run much, much, much better than you were ever before. 
so that is super key and that's something that we look for because it's it's the quicker we realize that someone isn't committed we just feel that that's you know extra time saved because uh, if we can figure that out in the process of the sale then we cut out all kinds of headache you know for for the relationship but if somehow we close the deal and figure it out in the relationship that whoops they like really only brought us in because you know innovation theater or you know something like that i mean um, it, it generally is just unfortunate. It's unfortunate because we don't enjoy it as much and the client doesn't get value from it. So mm -hmm. we, try to, we try to gracefully exit those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Saying, saying no, I think that was something yeah. in, in your, uh, the pre-interview was just, you know, basically saying no, I guess is, is good. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, that, that's advice I would give to my, uh, younger self in a, especially in a professional setting of, Mm -hmm. you know, like your when your boss says to do something like people are afraid to say no they just blindly do what their boss says and um you got to say no much more often and prioritize what you think is important and if you do something that you think is important either one of two things will happen your boss will say wow that actually is important and they'll reward you much more than if you would just done what they did or they'll say what the hell are you doing this isn't important and you'll learn from them what they think is important so <laughs> It's magical how that works. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, yeah, the, this after this question, you're pretty much off the hook here. Uh, All right. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Ooh, man, <laughs> that, is, that is tough. Um, this is a very Bridgewaterian answer, by which I mean I'll answer the kind of like meta level, like what gives, what determines if advice is good or not. <laughs> but I think the best advice that you, I, I, I'll try to think of a specific case, um, but I've gotten so much good advice and so much terrible advice. I think the best <laughs> advice is, you know, look for advice where people aren't telling you what to do, but they're telling you how to think about something. Because mm. people are always in different circumstances and it's not directly applicable and, 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 for, and people don't never, hardly ever like to actually do what they tell you to do, right? So, so if you're just listening to what people say, I would do this in your shoes, like 99% of the time, it's not true. And I'm not saying they know they're lying to you, but they're lying to themselves and to you. Um, <laughs> so think, ask them like, why are you advising me to do that, right? What are you thinking about? How are you coming to that decision? Mm -hmm. and that, in that conversation, you will get so much more value about thinking about which way to go and what to actually do than just taking advice for face value. Um, hmm. I mean, I, I can think of no really specific case comes to mind, but, but anytime I ask people for advice, it takes that form. I ask them like, what would you do in this situation? They tell me, and then I ask them why, why, why? And I mean, again, my fiance, um, uh, she would tell you, she'd be the first to tell you that it drives her crazy. It's like, you know, a two-year-old, you know, a kid just following around asking why, why, why. <laughs> and that's really uh, what I try to do. And um, that's and awesome. I, I want to understand, you know, what is, what is the reasoning this person has? What is their perspective that they have that explains this advice they're giving me? Because if the perspective or if the reasoning is different from mine, it might be that this advice that gets me, which sounds like it's good on paper, might be totally irrelevant for me to do. So yeah, that's, that's really awesome. Yeah. I, I guess my last little kind of off the cuff question is like, how, how many whys do you go before you're like, <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Cause well, I mean, I, the, yeah, there's the rule of thumb. There's like five, but I, I, I just try to, you know, do it how it feels, you know, at some yeah. point. 
just get too philosophical and you know it should always have a practical if you're asking like why should we increase sales like you've probably gone a little bit too you've, far you've yeah. you've nailed it yeah you've gone you've gone as far as you need to go yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's awesome um okay so going into 2020 what is the most important book that we should read it could be technical or not technical just kind of whatever comes to mind Ooh, um this one is a not, not an old one but certainly not a new one um but fooled by randomness is one I keep coming back to, um, especially these days with so many people quoting figures about the coronavirus. You know, it, it's it's just another flu and all this you know nonsense. Um, or at least personally, from looking at the data, or not personally, no, the data says that that is nonsense. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, fooled by randomness is an incredible book, just about how easy it is for people to uh, just be fooled. By, by arbitrary random outcomes and attribute random noise to their own benefit, like being caused by their signal rather than it just being noise. I mean, it goes, it, it roughly has to do with the finance industry, but it really applies and has lots of examples and cases from all sorts of uh, uh, industries and also just general cases in life. Um, you know, one example that was really uh, that comes to mind that is applicable is, is uh, there was a there's a scam where people would mail um, you know flyers saying like the next month the stock market will go up right and you can imagine this in anything like predicting anything it doesn't need to be the stock market mm -hmm. um, it could be like the next month you know it can be a, a, a fortune teller right or a psychic you know one of those people on TV is like sending out predictions so they send out a thousand right stock market goes up or down, doesn't matter to the person who sends it because the next month, 50% of that. So 500, it went up, right? Let's say, so they send out another one. It'll stock market go up. Okay, next month, 250 people remain. They send out 250. Next month goes up, 125 remain. So to the, to the point of view of one of those 125, this person has now predicted for three months in a row this thing correctly. But to 875 other people that you don't see, they're, you know, they were wrong. So it, it, that's just one example that I think is really eye-opening of just like how easy it mm. is to trick and fool yourself when you're looking at data and numbers of any kind. And there's so many other great uh, examples in there, like how do we think about probability? You know, if your life expectancy is 87 years old, you know, conditional probabilities, like if you're 85, that doesn't mean that you expect to die in two years, right? So all these concepts that are fundamental to thinking about data that, um, that unfortunately aren't often talked about or, or taught in schools. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I can't. So that's one of the, the benefits of this podcast is I get like weekly uh, book recommendations and I'm super excited about that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's all good, man. We are, we are just rounding uh, the last corner here. Uh, what are some languages besides Python that you're excited about for 2020? Um, yeah, I just want to, touch real briefly. I, I think that's a great point. One of my rules of thumb is that if anyone ever tells me, um, if anyone ever, you know, strongly recommends that this is the one top book they would read, I try to read that book. So everybody in the world gets one book recommendation in my <laughs> eyes. But, uh, but yeah, so, so other languages, I mean, really the only one I'm most excited about other than Python, and I have to take this second to, to re-emphasize Python because I do get asked all the time like should I you know, learn R and, and, and other languages I mean nothing against other languages like I code 
uh, Node.js, you know, a lot of backend stuff, connecting uh, pipelines and APIs and databases, that's, that's key. But especially if you want to get into machine learning, um, Python, like Python just has such an extensive, uh, vast uh, knowledge base and resources and online tutorials, et cetera, libraries. Mm -hmm. It's just not, it's just no comparison. So if you're wondering like, data science, should I learn R and MATLAB and Python, like start with Python, I would recommend. Um, the other one that excites me is Julia, if you've heard of that. Yeah, that has, some, that has something to do with Jupyter, uh, I believe, right? Or yeah. integrating that technology a little? Yeah, I think, the, I think they're, um, I, th I, don't, I don't know the full extent of the, their relation, but you certainly can use Julia outside of a, outside of a, you know, a Jupyter uh, setting. But, um, but Julia is definitely much, 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 much smaller than Python, much, much, much newer, but is a lot faster and in certain circumstances um, can be, uh, a very useful tool and is also growing relatively quickly. Hmm. Uh, so that's a key to look at. And so um, I think I, I would recommend, I still wouldn't recommend like starting with Julia. I would recommend first learning Python and moving to Julia um, um, or Cython you know, for quicker Python. But, um, but I've, I mainly use Python and, and PySpark, you know, Scala with Python kind of on the top. Um, and works for me. I mean, I'm always learning new stuff, but, but those would be ones to focus on. Yeah. Mm, awesome. Thanks for sharing. And you, you just reminded me, uh, there was a project I recently found called Apache Airflow and it's another Airbnb open source product. Have you messed around with that at all? Um, the I know the name I have to, it's like a workflow automation. Like uh, I, yeah. I found it trying to do some ETL stuff, but they're like, no, no, no. We ETL is just part of the mix that we, we automate all things. Uh, anyway, I, I was just curious if you've, um, found any good use for that or, or heard of that uh, project. So my co-founder and I r roughly split up to him being relatively more data engineering side and okay. relatively more data. So I think I heard it about it from him and he's used it. I haven't used it, but it looks really great. Um, yeah. Those are tasks that I would love to have more tools for. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's uh. well, um, that's, thank you for all this uh, insight and knowledge nuggets that you're just uh, sharing with everyone. Uh, we've opened up all these cans of worms. What is kind of the message that you want to leave the audience with? Oh boy. <laughs> um, I think just, you know, applied AI has so many other pieces to it than just the data and just the techniques or the, you know, the programming, certainly the more than the programming language uh, or machine learning in general. And mm -hmm. so don't underestimate those aspects, even if you are, you know, if you're looking for a job or you're looking for, to do something similar to, you know, our, myself, like a coach or consultant, de definitely think about the people. But even if you think that, oh, I'm going to go and start a, you know, a B2B SaaS platform startup that's just going to be a pure technology play, you still need customers who, you need, still need to sell customers, right? You still need to create your product and frame it in a light that is easy for them to understand and that they can use. And so it all comes down to people using technology. And I think that the AI or data or machine learning, just general you know, industry has been more guilty than other industries of forgetting that because of the inherent nature of what 
these this industry is of automation and and you know being intelligent like a human we kind of have convinced ourselves sometimes that we don't need as big a focus on humans but but it's all about hmm. human plus ai uh, so don't forget those pieces of it and it really applies to every step of the life cycle right from the very beginning of how you define it design it to the very end of like target you know whoops we focused on making an algorithm when we should have been focused on making a good user experience yeah yeah excellent man that's that th this has been uh, an amazing experience matt thank you so much for coming on the show where what is the call to action where do we send them after this interview what must they go do yeah, appreciate it. It's been it's been great chatting with you. Great questions. Um, we'd love to connect on LinkedIn. I actually, as you as I mentioned before, I share some content there. I, I share uh, actionable tips through short videos, you know, less than two minute videos. Do that twice a week um, on data and AI. So you can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn at Matt R O'Connor is my handle, um, and uh, and hope to uh, hope to hear from people. Awesome. Yeah, th this has been great. And uh, I look forward to uh, seeing your content and leveraging that. And uh, all right. Well, I guess that's the show, folks. Thanks again. Awesome. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm.